Hello, listeners. Have you been co-opted? Do you wish you had been co-opted? Are you happy you avoided co-option? Are you actively in recovery from your co-option? What did the hegemonic system do to you? And what are you planning to do to it? I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, but sadly still without a pink coffee. That is sad. Of course, we're stuck inside. Well, we're stuck isolating is maybe a better way to to describe it. And uh, we're joined with a very special guest. Thank you for joining us, Peter Thompson. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Of course, we're all linked together via our online studio bunker setup, uh, and it's sounding rather good, so it's exciting. And it's rather simple to do, which, you know, is relatively new for media, let's say, which leads us into our topic, which is that I'm thinking about doing some postgraduate research in tackling some of the mainstream media in grassroots academic media, which, of course, we're engaging with right now. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about this because uh, it'll probably help me narrow my focus, I guess, a bit. There's a great talk. I'm not sure if you've seen this, Peter. I can't imagine that David has much of an interest in him, but uh, Jordan Shanks, otherwise known by his YouTube channel, Friendly Geordies, has a, um, a great interview with Kevin Rudd. goes for about an hour and they talk about media bias. Yeah, I did catch that. And it's fantastic because the whole discussion, you can broadly break it down to that in Australia uh, for federal politics, the discussion is framed by the Murdoch press or framed by the newspapers mostly, uh, which... Well, the Murdoch press, let's be correct. Yeah, okay. Now well, that the, the SMH are too weak, they mm. don't even really offer a, a genuine contrast. And mm. the Guardian just does its thing internationally, which yeah. means it has an impact for those who want to find it, but it is not really a player within the Australian context. Yes. I mean, and they're all, and it's, it's all online. So it's all kind of stuck behind paywalls and things as yeah. well. So, which means that, you know, unless, unless you do want to find it, you're not, you're, you're not going to pay for it, you know? So, yeah. um, uh, they frame the, dis- well, sorry, the Murdoch press frames the discussion so that the next, you know, you might have a newspaper print something, you know, some kind of headline. And the next night that is exactly what Lee sales is asking on the seven thirty report mm-hmm. when, I, I guess I, ideally in this country, you would have it that ABC sets the discussion frame because it is a public broadcaster or, no, or even I'd if make it's the SPS. argument they shouldn't ever be setting the frame, but they should be interrogating media on the left, media on the right and being as ruthless on both. Mm. But seeing we don't have cohesive media on the left, all they seem to be able to do is therefore be reactive. That's the problem you're describing when mm. the Murdoch press define it the AB respond. And unfortunately it literally means they always look reactive um, and they always look anti because they're trying to broaden the debate, which actually makes it look like they're being leftist when they're, all they're doing is asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. When re- realistically they're not, they're not leftists, you know, they give the same amount of airtime to, you know, labor as they do liberal, but they tend not to go as hard on, 
on coalition politicians. This is what the way it's perceived anyway, because, you know, they're the ones who are threatening to cut the funding to uh, places like ABC. So um, there's, there's a lot of forces that keep them from being as independent as they should be uh, mm. that way. Uh, and another point raised in this talk, and I, I would recommend that listeners watch slash listen to this chat with Kevin Rudd is that media watch should be a program that's put on for one hour every night, like five nights a week, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, having it down to a 30 minute segment, I think once a week, mm-hmm. uh, is just not enough because it, it really aggravates all the journalists and editors, uh, in say the Murdoch press and in, let's say morally corrupt media. <laughs> mm. So what was Kevin Rudd's perspective? Did he believe he had been seen as an acceptable prime minister with an acceptable agenda by the Murdoch press? Or did he do the line that the whole world was against him and everyone hated him and he had to go and eat worms, which is his standard line now about everything? Yeah, I guess he went with his standard line except that he said basically uh, you know five minutes to midnight or whatever the saying the expression is that uh murdoch press realized that they couldn't do anything to change whether you know kevin was going to win in 07 and it immediately started to basically kiss his ass well Um, to learn to manage him so that mm. they still again they did what any true hegemonic power should do and that's go well if we've lost our, our favorite pet yeah Let's make sure that we domesticate the new one. And you know, the fact that late in the campaign, there was some wonderful satire on the ABC describing Kevin 07 as Howard 2.0. Mm. Now that was ruthless. And you know, Kevin Rudd went incandescent over it because it was essentially true. Mm. He was a neoliberal with a China focus instead of a neoliberal with a, you know, a UK focus. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Which, I mean, a lot of people seem to blame our current situation, which is uh, our heavy reliance on China, which is um, definitely in the media right now on that era, um, when it's probably better traced back to Gough Whitlam, I would imagine. Well, again, Gough was making decisions even before China had transformed its economy. Mm. Mm. So if you really look, it's literally from, you know, Hawke and Keating having that definite leftist Australian view that any leftist party in the world, of course, eventually wants to become democratic and nice because that's what the utopian left is. Mm. Not understanding that there could also just be an authoritarian left. Mm. I think we touched on an interesting point uh, just before, which is uh, which is people's people being beholden to other people. And uh, Kevin Rudd, in a way, becoming beholden to the um, uh, to the Murdoch press, um, and you can contrast that with the way that people look at, let's say, the Murdoch media compared to the ABC, for example. A lot of people kind of uh, take the assumption that Murdoch uh, Murdoch journalists are just towing the line; they're doing exactly what their corporate masters say. That that the ABC is somehow independent by virtue that their funding comes from the government. I'm sure you've heard that kind of sentiment expressed. But but when you, I suppose when you think about it, and that's what this, this conversation has kind of sparked in my mind, that they're really not uh, free agents. They're getting checks from the government. They're being employed. They're uh, responsible to both political parties for the things that they cover. So uh, 
they're not really acting as these wonderful free agents that we might want them might want them to be representatives of the of the fourth estate it, it um, seems they're tied to the institution as much as an opposition party would be in some mm. sense asking the questions trying to keep people accountable but ultimately part of the same organization in some sense <laughs> so that this is the point is that um i guess this is maybe what more left-leaning people believe is that the abc doesn't tend to go as hard on coalition uh, uh you know party members because uh, they are the ones who consistently threaten to defund the abc mm. um that seems too simplistic yeah okay. When you've got, well, to me it does, because when you're an opposition party, you have to make a case for what you want to do is better than what we have. Now, what we have, we have heaps of data on. We don't have heaps of data on what people want to do instead. So Mm -hmm. they need to be more rigorous and more persuasive. And this demented idea that's appeared in global democratic politics of, oh, no, we're only going to give you the headlines of our policy package until two weeks before the election, thus to hide how poorly developed it really is. So you know, the rigour on opposition, to my mind, is, well, if an opposition wants to have any chance of winning, it better be able to stand up to that rigour. Mm. You know, survival of the fittest here. You know, the government in power, we can see how poor they are. <laughs> it's like this morning. Did you guys, and again, this will date the podcast, and sorry, listeners, if it's a few days before this comes out and you can't find the clip, but President Trump did a press conference this morning where a female journalist from CBS just started tearing strips off him. And he just talked over and said, you are a prime example of fake news. I can't see any reason to listen to you. Basically, that was the end of it instantly. He used what worked on his followers and she had nowhere else to go. Whereas in reality, if she wasn't in the press conference with the president, but was actually out on the streets of the US going, oh, look at this monumental failure. Oh, look at this disaster. Oh, look, this is another thing he hasn't funded or thought about. Oh, look, here's another example of him putting a cretin in a position of power. What's the point of sitting in the press conference and giving him oxygen when in reality the media could be reporting on the actual state of the disaster? That is the world as he has you know, devastated slash constructed it. This is, well, this is another, another fascinating issue of why reporters might favour their uh, ostensive opponents or give them give them the benefit of the doubt it's access a big issue there was a big scandal in the in the computer gaming community a while ago called gamergate and um, a lot of people were extremely shocked that there were deals and understandings and agreements behind the scenes perhaps unspoken to provide more favorable coverage for certain games for certain reasons and people were in uh, up in arms about it. I mean, people really got mad. And uh, um, having kind of worked in the media myself, I thought, oh, is everyone actually surprised by this? This is the this is the kind of the the agreement that goes on uh, unspoken in a lot of cases, which is I won't be totally vicious in my coverage, and in exchange you'll continue to give me access, mm. which I then use as a uh, sales point for my uh, viewers or listeners. Um, and that gives me the power to be able to uh, generate revenue through volume. So I think that that's also an interesting angle, especially in the, in the private arena. But I mean, also for places like the ABC, if they take an extreme hard line on coalition MPs, let's say, 
coalition MPs get cagey. They start not doing interviews or not putting people on shows. Then the kind of um, then the impression would be that the ABC is not being fair and balanced. So I, I have a I have a, 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 some sympathy for um, for journalists, even at the ABC, and the tightrope they have to walk in terms of tone. Mm. It seems the problem. Then we we get to the same problem we have in politics. We have in the media. Everyone's got a vested interest, and even if it's not publicly spoken there's still an underlying economic imperative. So unless you're going to say, right, out of the tax base, we're just going to generate a pool of money. And that pool of money is going to be distributed amongst media organizations. So everyone has a bit of money that they got given to go about their business. As long as what they do is, you know, sensible reporting, you know, they can have an opinion left or right or otherwise, as long as they're upfront about it, but you almost need a media where all, perspectives of it have some funding to be, you know, know they're okay, no matter what, that, that, that can't disappear as long as they're being a responsible news outlet. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's some kind of democratization of the media landscape. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that's, that's what this conversation has kind of been um, uh, kind of triggering in my mind is this idea of, well, what, what is the problem with, um, with a, a homogenous media landscape in terms of ownership? And mm. the problem would be is that all of those large sections of the media landscape are going to be tilted towards certain things, certain aspects and certain opinions. And that, that's obviously the problem because the, the best media landscape is one where there is okay, uh, people have different opinions and we don't know what the truth of the matter is. So mm. if you kind of think about it for a second, what you want is a system where there are lots of people with lots of points of view, the ability to scale up the points of view which are popular amongst other people, but enough differing points of view from people with differing interests that, um, that you have a good chance of, of things taking off if they're kind of the right mix of accuracy and nonpartisanship and, and what have you. And that seems to be the kind of system that's emerging with, as you alluded to at the start, Tim, with the introduction of podcasts and more user-generated material, say, non-traditional forms of media. Even those platforms are subject to this, right? A good example of, yeah, something you were trying to point out earlier would be, say, something like YouTube reviews of tech products which is like a massive market and is very male dominated as well. And that kind of tech industry, but you know, a lot of your reviewers will have basically unsaid agreements, unwritten agreements with the companies that they're receiving products from to review them in a nice way. So they continue to receive the products so they can put more content out there um, and receive uh, money. Right. Yeah, the access uh, isn't contractual. It's in kind. Yeah. Oh, you are kind. So we'll be kind. So you'll be kind. So we'll be kind. And there doesn't ever have to be a formal agreement. All there is is a habituated pattern. Which, yeah, which is is terrible for uh, consumers in the same way that our current media landscape is terrible for democracy. Um, This all gets back to where we originally started this idea of, of hegemony in media. There's hegemony in so many things. You don't need to directly control someone. You just need to offer them something they value and they give you something you value. And out of that comes a relationship where no one has ever twisted an arm or raised a fist, but the behavior is very predictable and there's a good level of compliance. Mm. So how, 
unrealistic or even problematic would it be to have a system where your politicians don't have relationships with journalists but are expected to engage with places like the ABC. Maybe you have two private organizations as well that seem to represent the other two sides of politics that it is almost written into the constitution that politicians have to engage with the media to, to uh, on, on those platforms, let's say to an extent. Um, well, again, I would turn it, exist. Mates, it doesn't become a game of mates, let's say. <laughs> I, I would turn it away from that back to my example of the CBS journalist. Mm. I think the big problem is, is our fast media cycle. Right. Because in our fast media cycle, it's, oh, we could either investigate or we can talk to the minister. Whereas if we could slow all this down a bit and go, oh, I had a week to build up my story to get it to the point of showing the editor what I found. At that point, the editor said, yep, go ahead. Now go talk to the minister. Oh, the minister won't talk to us. Well, isn't that nice? When we run the story next week, we will make the point that we've just demonstrated that the ministers are either inept or corrupt mm. or just not paying attention and that they were given an opportunity to talk. And here's the email from their office where they said no to the interview. Right. Yeah. I mean, that would, that would be, that would be magnificent. And there was, I suppose, if we're kind of looking back to the late nineties, early noughties, there was still a modicum of that uh, kind of old style left. I mean, yeah. uh, this when now that we've touched on this, um, it seems like we need to talk for a little bit about why things have changed so much in media from the, yeah. from the old style. And I know the regular listeners will have heard this a dozen times, but it, if I can, if I can try and sum it up pretty quickly, it might be something like in the old days, there were very narrow streams, one directional streams of information. Those meant that they could generate a huge amount of money for the owners of those streams and channels. And that allowed for some kind of degree of uh, kind of homogeneity of, of message. The invention of the internet created so many more channels for the distribution of information and the advertising revenue also dissipated through those channels, which has led us to a situation now where contemporary uh, or rather uh, conventional media organizations have had to downsize heavily. They've had to lower their staffs. They've had to reduce the, uh, the quality of their investigative reporting. And um, there's a lot more recycling of other um, outlets, media articles. I know that's what a huge amount of journalists in Australia do. They go, they stalk the news lists, they put their own story out, they try and inflame it a little bit, put something zesty in there and push it out and try and get clicks. But yeah, it, it seems to be that that has that's been a result of the, the changing ability of companies to make money. Uh, so the, the establishment of the media has been rocked by grassroots. You know, Joe Rogan doesn't have a network platform yet is earning more than than any of the podcasts let's say that any of the network uh, podcasts could could hope to make yeah it's something to the tune of i think 30 million dollars a year that he makes in 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 promotions and things like that which is yeah, just well. crazy but also i mean those advertisers are getting good value for money by comparison to what they were getting on radio and things like that so mm -hmm. the competition to get money uh, the competition to make money from this from media has become yeah, a lot harder, I think, is is one really important point of what you kind of just said. 
So um, could which, we say at this point then, sorry, Tim, just because mm. I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing that I don't know the answer to, that the reason that the remains of the mainstream media and politicians stay close to each other is because they still understand each other and neither are very good at adapting to the new mm. rules. Yeah, wow. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I just, I had the thought and thought, hang on, that seems the logical next step. Mm. that both the political parties and the remains of the conventional media, they don't like their cosy relationship necessarily. It causes both of them all sorts of problems, the media more so than the politicians. But when they try and dabble in both cases in new media, like, you know, fast production of YouTube videos, podcasts, you know, getting a sort of groundswell response, they fail dismally. Well, yeah, because... Often these cases, as is going to be with our podcast, that it takes a really long time to build up an audience on these platforms. And it, it doesn't work in quite the same way as I guess it would with television. That it, As soon as you have some kind of name, I guess, as you would with a network or, you know, as you do with a TV show or, or when you're a TV star or when you're a network, that it automatically means that you're in the industry. Like you can have the next show or you can do whatever it doesn't quite work like that on a podcast like the actual content it's judged more based on its content than it is on the reputation Mm. of the parties that create the product so and this leads into a reflection then that in the same way the political elite and the traditional media can't help but keep interacting with each other because they understand each other they don't understand the new Mm. the new can't really stop that relationship or get access to the money, or get access to the politicians for interviews because they don't have the weight of listeners or viewers to throw around. Yeah, see, that's so both in something very new problem. and in something very old. If you're mm. too small, you're still out on the periphery. Yeah, very true. Like larger networks, uh, or, you know, say if the. When, I know that the Murdoch press has podcasts, but I could not name one for you because it's not in my interest to listen to them, but they would be able to gain interviews with Mm. uh, politicians or, or artists or whoever they wanted really, because it is deemed to be part of their entire network. And because they already have that relationship, it, it is easy to do, even if the message for the politicians or the artists or whatever it is might not come out in the way that they want. And even if it's not reaching as many people as you might expect, it's still going to stay within that um, establishment of the Murdoch press. So it's weird. There's kind of conflicting ideas there that uh, old media doesn't necessarily launch new media effectively, but because of their existing relationships, they're still able to gain access to people. The new media can wheeze along because it's running on the residual fat of an old industry. Yeah. So we're seeing perfect hegemony. No need ever to use hard power because there's still enough sort of fat on the carcass to keep doing whatever they do to maintain the relationships between political power, medial power, and industry power. So really, we haven't moved anywhere since Antonio Gramsci wrote about hegemony in the 1920s. No. We just have more of us on the outside now wanting to prick the carcass and go, can we have some of that fat, please? But in reality, when there were hundreds of little newspapers across Italy or France or England, you know, they were the same medium as the mainstream, but still on the periphery. 
So interestingly, everything's changed, but nothing's changed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Somehow TV still exists, but I haven't connected an aerial for I don't know how many years. <laughs> yeah. And, and mainstream newspapers still exist, but do any of us actually buy a subscription? No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and all of it's reproduced online as well. Um, yeah. the last time I used a newspaper, honestly, it's been wrapping Christmas presents for the past few years. Like I, I can't... <laughs> I couldn't tell you. Uh, I couldn't tell Your you. Your home repair projects where you need to keep sort of plaster off the floor, that kind of stuff. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a completely different purpose. I, I can't tell you the last time that I would have even considered buying a newspaper. It's probably beyond my generation, but even my dad used to buy them quite regularly. Doesn't get them much anymore. So, mm. yeah. it's, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because. Because we're we're kind of getting into a point where we might be we might think oh well we've got you know we've got the same old hegemonic powers there but at least we've got websites at least we've got blogs at least we've got podcasts kind of filling in the blanks but then I was uh, I was recently reading uh, what's it called Douglas Murray's The Madness of Crowds oh yes fascinating read yeah, quite a fascinating read and he was talking about the Google algorithm in general and the the biases that are coded into it. And that's quite interesting because you, you might think, oh, okay, well, we've got, we're, we're post, we're, we're on the periphery here, but at least we can choose what we want on the periphery. We can choose little um, podcasts that we think are interesting or enlightening or whatever by our own free will. But even that is subject to this new strata of media control, which is the big tech companies that filter even the choices that we think we're making about our media consumption. Mm. So it, it, like us needing to have reviews on iTunes. Yes. It's the ultimate irony. If you don't get reviews in the right place, you don't move. So the funny thing with this is, you know, sorry to interrupt, Peter, but no, it gets us to that next step. At what point does someone like Joe Rogan get co-opted because he's seen as being potentially dangerous? Now, the great thing with him from, the hegemony's perspective is he's apolitical. Mm. He's so, in a sense, the modern non-democratic human who just floats in space and does whatever he does because nothing impinges on his freedom to be himself. Mm. So he doesn't really think of you know, where he fits politically or doesn't seem to. Mm. So he's not going to be co-opted. Now, if we're having this conversation, what it really means over here is, you know, hello, dum-dum senior on the left. The three of us are happy to be co-opted towards, you know, some money to be progressive, to push a progressive agenda because it's our natural agenda. So all we would be doing is doing what we naturally do. Mm. Mm. But they don't either need us or have the brains to know where to find us to then grow the audience and effectively co-opt us to serve that broader agenda. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, another point that uh, you've just made me think about another point in this conversation with Kevin Rudd um, from um, the YouTube channel Friendly Geordies was that progressive media in Australia either tends to um, kind of appease the very far left or basically the center and, and then to the right. Mm. And there isn't a lot of kind of, let's say, moderately left media out there that is a, or effective moderate left media out there Um, we've got we've got economic centrism and mm. then we've got let's say economic uh, center right Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we've got um let's then we've got for for lack of a better word let's say um postmodern inspired activist politics Um, we've got wokeness wokeness that's even better (laughs) more succinct 
Um, yeah, so we've got this weird blend of woke, hyper-woke politics and center-right economics posing as centrist or center-left economics. Mm. It's bizarre kind of bedfellows. Mm. Well, it's interesting, like the economic part. I mean, I've been really fascinated about this recently, of course, because I've only really just starting to understand that that it is actually an arguable science. Mm-hmm. And it is, a, it is a point where you can be realistically and reasonably be on different sides of a debate in terms of left or right within economics. Mm. And, and that isn't just down to, oh, you're a communist, you know, uh, that, that there are actually some moderate, that is a moderate scale. There is, there's a scale on economics that we're just not seeing in the media at, at all, really. And it's almost presented in the media to be, and I think this is that neoliberal model, that, mm. that all of it is just true, that the, the narrative that is at least mainstream is, isn't, is, is, has no credible challenges and is because it's math just a matter of fact, I guess. Yeah. Um, ideology pretending to be reality. Do you mm. guys remember we did an episode where we got to the point of describing that essentially, you know, life or how to function was a lot like a donut. You could have bits from the left and bits from the right and the gap. You know, the point was to kind of fill the middle with yourself. Mm-hmm, true. This is making me think that in a sense, what we've got, you know, with the left is exactly that again. We've got a void in the middle where it's not the work fringe and it's not the, the conventional thing of, neoliberalism pretending to be reality it's this void in the middle and i just had this thing you know blind insights colon podcasting from the void <laughs> i like it yeah, that's what i'll name, the, I'll name the, the episode that yeah and the neoliberalism is off to the right and we're stuck here in the middle with nothing mm. <laughs> mm. last thing i want our listeners to get the impression of is oh i wish that the abc properly represented the left or uh, I wish our podcast was more <laughs> popular than it is. Although I, I think wish that we would had actually a broad be... media without void, mm. without mm. gaping holes. It's broader than that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, I want it to be broader and that's the point. Mm. Yeah. I want there to be a spread so that people can go credible, 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 credible from across the spectrum, but with different political perspectives represented and meaningfully debated. True. I want to come back to a point you made earlier, David, you raised that um, we're like, let's say open to being co-opted slightly. <laughs> yeah. I, well, as again, mm. listeners, we're running this with video so that, you know, Tim and Peter can at least see each other and see me. So I was smiling in a cheeky manner as I said it. Mm. Yeah. I would like someone to come to us with resources because what we could do is help fill one of these gaps in the quality debate about how society should be. Not that we could be co-opted because if I tried to co-opt it, I'm going to tell them to fuck off. Yeah. But I'd really like the money to be able to help us fill these voids and help other people to fill parts of the void that we can't fill because we're not interested. Mm, True. I mean, it's it's sort of idyllic in the sense that our platform as it stands, just because of our audience, isn't commercially viable. Um, not not enough to support like an income, basically. Mm. Um, and so it's a bit idyllic to be like, oh, well, someone should just fund us because what we're doing is worthwhile, which it is. But mm. it, media, as I think we kind of raised earlier, doesn't run on 
the quality and strength of its content necessarily. It it's it's a lot runs from the nature of its historical relationships to the carcass right. that still has fat on it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But an overall interesting point is that we would be kind of happy to sit within a moderately left kind of progressive media network, I guess. And that that is okay because that's how we normally function. Mm. I think it's an interesting idea because this is part of the righteous mind that we, we, we get really upset with journalism, with news media, like especially that that is very obviously biased and it was an interesting point that you said that this is how we operate normally so it's kind of okay for us to be within that framework but i'm not sure that some days i would uh, allow or take that into account if i were reading something that had an the opposite point of view it's a kind of an interesting question of media bias is that it's actually rather permissible for people to release things that are in line with their moral code mm. Well, again, we end up back at the donut again because most of my views on security are going to be seen as being conventionally more to the right of centre than the left of centre. So the irony is I think there's a void between fringe left, middle, middle, fringe right. Mm. So, that, again, there's a, there's a donut within the donut within the donut, <laughs> which is empty space of that flexibility of things are neither left or right they can be progressive, but still aware of the value of security. So, you know, interesting combinations of things where, I don't know, maybe we need a model more like a matrix. It seems to me that if we have a matrix of representing the sensible views in that they're well thought out, they're well argued on the nature of how society should be and how we want the world to be, there's lots of bits of the matrix surprisingly lacking in nodes. Hmm. But you, we're never going to get to that point unless the, let's say, current he- hegemonic forces are prepared to admit that, a, 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 admit their position and perhaps their bias and even their fallibility and come to terms with competing well, I think uh, it's simpler and more ruthless than that. And mm-hmm. it is they have to run out of fat to co-opt us with. You think, okay. Mm. So if there's no more cash and no more opportunity, they can buy us with. So, okay, let's go back to our example of your media in the long form. So something like the Saturday paper where people can spend a whole week working on something and put something long and and really thoughtful together. Perfect opportunity to write about big business, uh, NGOs, politicians, political parties, global organizations with the time and opportunity to shine a very bright light. But again, it only happens on that little scale. And all those organizations still have the resources to generally ignore or sidestep that occasional scrutiny. So either the scrutiny has to become so intensive from so many directions that they can't hide as easily, or the alternative is they start running out of resources to co-op people to shut up. So this has nothing to do with bias it has nothing to do with what the audience wants it is literally just that the media is too concentrated well i think you know there's always the thing of bias in there but mm. it seems to me that this thing of who's got resources and as long as they've still got them they're probably still going to win because resources are persuasive and that's that's at the center of gramsci's arguments about hegemony 
that if you are seen as dangerous, we don't let you become an enemy. We co-opt you into being on our side. Mm. So a really radical journalist doesn't aspire to start their own newspaper, doesn't aspire to do their own podcast. They aspire to be at the ABC. Yeah. Mm. So they've already been co-opted and that's not to say co-option is a bad thing. Gramsci was describing how the world works. Mm. Not that co-option was totally dastardly, but just saying that in most cases, yeah, the system won't crush you like a bug. If you're useful, they'll co-opt you. Well, I mean, Peter and I can attest to this, that I'm, I'm not sure what your experience was, but I felt as if my experience in a media degree was that almost every course and every topic we covered seemed to establish that old media was going to die and that new media is not only very effective at communicating with audiences, but is going to be determined by audience desires. And with that, I would think it would inspire an entire generation of of journalists and media careerists, let's say, to pursue and almost only pursue new kinds of media and but who's writing about I mean, I mean, I mean it has mm. you think mm. it has yeah i mean but it, it, everyone's got a podcast but mm. um very few people ever gain enough followers to think that it's useful to continue it or let alone financially um possible to sustain mm. a career from it but everyone has and i think it's that i, I think it's people who have who uh, I think this has come from the universities because people have such a love for, for the left and, um, and for, uh, and they've got tenure within the Academy, which means they can write about how amazing new media is because let's yeah. be blunt, they're tenured. So they have been more effectively co-opted than you know, any of the people generating new media. It's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a Marxist argument. It's like, um, um, new media, new decentralized media is, going to be the people rising up and taking control of the means of production in terms mm. of uh, rather the modes of production in terms of information generation. And that is going to create a paradigm shift in, in the society and everyone has started a podcast. So but it's I mean, not people, generating a paradigm shift. I don't think. No, because yeah. it goes back to what David was saying, which is that the, the, the only, the only, outside media figures that succeed are the ones that are able to create a, a benef- mutually beneficial relationship with the carcass mm. and can sustain themselves off some of that fat. Mm. And so you see, if anything, just echoes of the mainstream from popularized outside media figures. Anyway, I cut off what you were saying before, if you can. No, no, no. Well, it was worth doing because I was about to say, almost the opposite my, my observation ah. my well no no it's not almost the opposite like i think your point stands i was just i agree i didn't realize i guess the extent to which i think everyone that i have graduated with has had some experience with grassroots media but that said i see more people entering into the establishment entering you know getting jobs with channel nine getting jobs with um radio stations working with you know large graphic design firms or whatever whatever it is so this gig economy that we're all expecting everyone to be entering into doesn't seem to be translating to media as much and i'm not sure that it, despite all of this language about how new media is going to take over it's not inspiring a new generation of journalists to no because they can't they can't make, make the money out i guess it. well yeah that's right yeah and as long as, like I said, this is why to me at the end, it comes down to only when the carcass starts running out of fat, 
Mm. And the political media and industrial elite can't co-opt anymore. Is there a chance for change? Mm-hmm. Mm. But so, I, so, I just, I'm not sure what, the, what instrument could you use to even create that setting? Um, the COVID-19 as we're experiencing now goes on for three years. Yeah. Okay. The economy as we know it is broken on paper. Wealth is worthless because there's nothing to buy and nowhere to go. Interesting. So you, yeah, you have to have system. Well, I come back to my argument multiple times from the life of the podcast. Things are going to have to get worse before they get better. And as bad as COVID-19 is, it isn't bad enough to break hegemony. Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. If, if things do have to get bad, I love this we parallel love that, that. that comes. <laughs> no, but I love this parallel parallel that comes up in this podcast because we do tread this line between talking about society broadly and then also individuals um, and trying to empower them with more self-helpy kind of things. And this, and this parallel keeps coming up, which is that a society needs to go through struggles in order to adapt and to grow as much as individuals need to experience pain and struggle in order to adapt and grow. Yep. Because the only way you overcome a system that's made some people comfortable is for that system to be destabilized. Otherwise, again, Gramsci was right. He wasn't having a go. You know, he didn't like the co-option because it was being used to keep people oppressed. Mm. Now here it's being used to keep people in kind of pointless consumption. Well, yeah. Now that's already a bit threatened at the moment, but not threatened enough that they'll lose control of the system. No, I think what you it's it's threatened, but it's highly adaptable to this kind of threat because it's got spare resources. And whenever you've got spare resources, and this is the critical thing, the people controlling a hegemony don't have to have the answers; they just have to work out who to co-opt. Yeah, which is probably not that hard of a task, really. No, because you know the classic example I used to give students during the Iraq War was imagine it's 2002, you're a young Iraqi, you've finished university and there are no jobs. You've got a dad who's out of work, your mum's got leukaemia and your little sister probably won't finish high school because what's the point? And suddenly the black BMW pulls out and the boys with the big moustaches and the mirrored shades get out of the black BMW in their leather jackets and go, well, you're a bright kid and you're well socially networked. Come and join you know, the security services. Yeah, occasionally we have to torture a few people, but, you know, your dad will have a job by next week, your mum will get cancer treatment, and your daughter will go to the top school in the city. Or sorry, your sister will go to the top school in the city. Of course you get co-opted under those circumstances. And I used to love doing inshoots of 30 students because they would just go silent. Going, you know, one, they never thought of it that way, and two, they realised that, yeah, you can pretend you wouldn't take the offer. Of course you would because you're stupid if you don't if you can empower your people but the minute you empower your people you make your people their people they become part of the elite's retinue so tackling the elite then seems an an, an elusive kind of um, mirage let's say what comes down to my thing I always come back to is remember we can be dangerous Mm. yeah Gramsci explained Hegemony. And we've got to remember, he explained hegemony, and that is amazing. But he, at the end of the day, was still a hardcore Marxist who, at the end of the day, would have happily overthrown the elite by executing every last one of them. 
because he understood unless you do, they have everything necessary to co-opt everyone who can benefit from abiding by the existing power structure. But is, is that something we would want to extradite uh, old boy Rupert back to Adelaide and hang him by his feet? <laughs> well, the thing is being you know, that we have the thing of history, we see that these kind of revolutions don't work, that once the genie of violence is out, it's just the next group use violence in a new way. Violence becomes a means and the end in itself to perpetuate an authoritarian rather than you know, any kind of progressive regime. Right. Mm. You know, look how many times the French had false starts between the French Revolution and finally hitting you know, modern democracy in the 1940s. They essentially lost 150 years of mayhem because violence became normal. Russia is still not recovered from you know, the early 20th century. Yeah. China's authoritarianism is, if anything, is more extreme you know, than during the Cultural Revolution. It's just not as overt. So the terrible thing is, this is one of the problems with democracy. As long as you're willing to leave the elite the elite and with control of the carcass, it's very hard to affect it. So to me, you know, when we talked about sortition, the idea of you know, randomly selected citizen assemblies, this is part of the reason why I think this is the only way forward if we genuinely want meaningful change. Because mm. the elite literally have to be put in a situation where they can't co-opt these people because these people never have to rely on them. Mm. And that's why media would have to be funded in the same kind of way with sortition. You know, randomly every few years, your media organisation could put forward for a grant and get 10 years of money to do sensible media. And yep, you're going to have to validate and verify but as long as you state what your political view is up front, you can have it because we're filling the matrix of sensible views so people have more considered you know, perspectives on how society should work. Well, that sounds exactly what like a publicly funded institution should be doing. That yeah. sounds like exactly what that idea... Yeah, but, but publicly funded in that sense of there's multiple small ones mm. doing their own thing, not becoming monolithic. Because the minute they monolithic, we move from hegemony to strategic culture, which of course, mm. Tim, you've understood from sitting in the classes. Peter's probably heard a little bit and listened to the podcast. But really, the other side of hegemony that Gramsci didn't write about is every one of these elites develops its own culture. Every hierarchy develops its own culture. And part of the thing is you select those people who are likely to accept being co-opted. So at ABC, it's everyone who's smoked a joint. Yeah. Hmm. They don't have to be very radical and they also want to succeed in a conventional way mm. or there wouldn't be any use to the organization. So as out there is someone like Andrew Denton can seem at times or Richard Feidler can seem what this really means from a co-option and strategic culture perspective is they're just far enough out to be interesting, but still totally manageable. Mm. Oh yeah. 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 They're manageable within the system. Well, they, they don't, mm. though, I mean, those kinds of people don't strike me as anyone that, that as, 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 difficult to even an extent like Kyle Sanderlands would be mm. who's not helpful, but is absolutely outrageous and, and almost untamable in some respect, mm. but pointless because there's no political movement. No, 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 exactly. Mm. Exactly. I just mean in terms of mm. from, from like a, from the organization's perspective, I feel like it would be much easier to handle someone like Andrew Denton mm. than who, who actually has more of a potential to be dangerous, mm. but doesn't Kyle. want to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
So this is why, to my mind, this thing of remembering we can be dangerous is the most important thing because the worst thing for this elite would be having to deal with people going, hang on, we might be trying to co-opt them, but they've remembered they can be dangerous and they like the toys of being co-opted, but they're also not as stable as the people we used to co-opt. They don't stay co-opted. Mm. Mm. Yeah, like why would you accept the co-option if it's not for life? And more and more often now, if it's only a three-year contract, is that worth really being co-opted for? Yeah, you're just going to get replaced. Yep. So how do you get people to be committed to the co-option? Now, co-option in Gramsci's period was we're co-opting you for life. We're co-opting you into the university. We're co-opting you into the party. We're co-opting you into the bureaucracy. We're co-opting you into the major companies for life. So one of the ironies of neoliberalism, believing everything should be short, brutal, and financial, is guess what? They maybe are wrecking their ability to effectively co-opt forever. Maybe I'm not sure. Well, like if if it ends up in this kind of let's say gig economy is is like is a really practical example. I think of what you're saying. I hope I'm interpreting that correctly. Then, because work becomes so much more precarious and things are so competitive, it is much easier to co-opt people and to break down their let's say political will and. Mm. Well, the gig economy, as we're seeing, is even shorter than these two or three year contracts. Yeah. So if you can get people down to one week, you know you own them. Yeah. Because they'll never have the resources to stop. So in a sense, yeah, the Marxists like Gramsci would go, "Ha ha, you're a wage slave." And guess what? You've allowed yourselves to become even more wage slaves by forgetting you have some power. Yeah. Uh, well, power to break shit. Yeah, but I mean, you know, a couple of individuals might have, but but. Uh, as far as I know, one of the, the most uh, steadfast rules in social science is that, is that violence in a society is equal to the visibility of wage disparity. Mm. So uh, I, I think the very agitated public attitude towards, let's say, capitalism in the West at the moment in favor of, let's say, redistributionism, uh, modern monetary policy, socialistic healthcare, education type outcomes. I think that's a result of this gig economy. It's mm -hmm. the manifest frustration of a generation, uh, our generation, Tim, who were never, who were never attempted to uh, be co-opted in any meaningful way. Um, the, 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 the need, the requirement for intake just was never there for our generation. No, well, they took the ones that were easy to co-opt, the ones who chose commerce and finance and medicine. Easy to co-opt, why, sorry? They were willing to choose the single path degree that leads to the name thing that is immediately useful to the hegemonic system. It's, so they get big prize quick, you know, quickly. It's straightforward and it's in, in, they get institutionalised, I suppose. Yep, really. in, instant institutionalisation. So mm -hmm. what you see in your generation isn't that the generation as a whole are out in space in the gig economy. They're not there's just a clearer distinction between those who self, you know, self co-opt very early and those who come out the end of the degree and go, uh, gig economy. And that you guys, I imagine would have hardly interacted with the people that were on the path to full co-option by 25. I know I should have. What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just learning. 
learning and experiencing and talking with brilliant people. <laughs> I could be, I could be in a corner office. What, you, what could a shame. Be, you could be sitting in one of the big four corporate advisories, making the same shit go around that went around last year that makes sure enough can be skimmed to make sure the elite can keep the fat on the carcass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One call, of the, call me. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, one of the things that I don't know, I think that makes people like you and I dangerous, Peter, is that I'm just now considering more time at uni, which is a, definitely a form of co-option in the sense that I'll be part of that institution. But it's that I am, and I've been trying to settle with this actually in the past few days, specifically as I've been thinking about this is that I am actually perfectly okay. Well, let's say perfectly okay. I am a lot more comfortable than I think some of my peers are with one, not earning very much money um, to not owning the place that I live. And let's say three, not affording the kind of lifestyle that, is shoved down our throats yeah a little bit it makes us it makes us dangerous to the extent that if you only ask a very little bit of the system then they're not that the, it makes it a lot harder to instantly co-opt you and it, and it doesn't make you needy to get into that kind of gig economy precarious position i'm perfectly okay with earning you know eleven hundred dollars a fortnight or whatever it is and even that is probably better than some that's better yeah. than you start so yeah. that's enough and 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 that makes that makes i think that makes us dangerous because we then have the free time and if we can find the purpose to uh we we can do all that learning and then share it with others um right. and i and i think then that's not easily co-optable or corruptible and right. this is the point where I'm going to clap and go, yay, now we can move on to my next big point. <laughs> okay. And that is, it's Ceslao Milos's idea of playing it, playing the game. You can go to uni and get what you can from it without being co-opted. You don't mm. want the job at Deloitte or KPMG. <laughs> you don't want the post-grad that guarantees you have to buy a suit. Mm. And the more people that can actually go, I don't want the stress or the co-option. Can I enjoy a simpler, smaller life where I am less affected by power? Guess what? The more people that fall in that category, the more you have a growing group who can talk openly and thoughtfully amongst each other and be the receivers of or contributors to new media. But the idea it can happen quick and that it will affect the mainstream, that's rubbish. Mm, right. It will happen slow mm. by growing the tribe of people who can exist more or less outside the co-optable system. Yeah. And then the system will decide, do we crush them? Well, we can't really justify it or we look like barbarians. How much can we limit their access to resources? Oh, they're starting to rely on each other. Bugger. Oh, they're starting to make media for each other and there's enough of them now that people are willing to advertise to them because they're economically viable. Oh crap. And that's where we'll get change. Oh, it's, it's not, so non-violent revolution, I think is more aptly described as evolution, which is a much slower process. Yep. And this is evolutionary and the people who are tenured in media departments waffling shit about new media changing the world tomorrow are part of the problem. They're making sure that the, 
you know, the elite who do the co-opting have media departments to help them maintain this rubbish mm. of convincing 19 year olds that at 25, they'll have their own website and be making $300,000 a year. Mm. What a crock of shit. Mm. That person at 50 might be part of a community just big enough to set up whatever a website is 25 years from now with enough sponsorship that their incomes all go up by a couple hundred bucks a week. Yeah. Mm. You get the women a long, long way down the line. So how does that compare? So we, we, we talked earlier about the, the Gutenberg revolution as it's called, which mm. um, I guess because you, because you, you carry that word, you get the impression that that, that lasted. So that, that, change things rather quickly but i would be interested to know because i don't know enough about what happened after was it actually a quick change in, in terms of the historical time scale then mm. yes but um probably probably not um probably was something that kind of leaked leaked more than boomed yeah. um relatively to how things are changing today I yeah, in terms of you know like we were talking about before we turn the recording on of printing of the Bible, for example. It was when it went from Latin to vernacular language. So in the case of English, the Tyndale Bible. Once people weren't preached at in Latin, but instead were reading the Bible in their own language, that's when it became dangerous. So we see that there's steps here. New technology began this. The gig economy began this. But these are unfinished early forms Lots of people are starting to think, mm, maybe I can live on less. Maybe I don't have to be part of the rat race. Maybe meaning is more important to me than the wealth that would come from co-option, assuming they've even thought that what the wealth would bring is co-option. But the end point is as far away as the Tyndale Bible was from the printing press. Mm, I like, like the idea of at least the correlation between, it's probably even causation, correlation between wealth and co-option yeah well most systems if you're given the money and you can see you know like we've got a fixation with you know uh, fame now celebrity but how hard does you know celebrities have to work to stay cool or they have no value to us and their money disappears yeah, well, yes, actually, yeah I, was, I was listening to something last night, actually. Uh, it was a celebrity. It was one of the guys who stars in the Marvel movies. I can't remember the character's name. But he was saying that now even the superstar is dying. Mm. In the 90s, you would, go and see, you would go and see an Arnold Schwarzenegger film because it was the latest Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Mm. Or you would go and see a Brad Pitt film because it was the latest Brad Pitt film. But now you have this, this changing, it's, it's like, a, I suppose, from the perspective of the producers of this type of thing, it would be a kind of a purification of the system because now you don't have, um, was it Tom Holland played Spider-Man? Yes. You don't have Tom Holland films. No. You've got Spider-Man films. Yeah, you move mm. on. The franchise is more powerful because that is the co-opting force. Exactly, exactly, David. That's mm. that's exactly right. And so we're kind of, even as we're talking about these forces kind of galvanizing perhaps in opposition or perhaps in contrast to the, the main uh, carcass-driven media, we've also got a kind of refining and, a, and an acceleration oh, of that system as well it, uh, it's not just stagnant it's evolving as it's uh, making it clear that you should be happy with the two movie deal in yep. your 20s and that's the end of your fame that's it 
but you got enough money in those two movies to have your celebrity for a couple of years and then disappear into life in the burbs, you know, with your aging Porsche, your aging house. Mm. But the whole point is you have a house on an aging Porsche. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. Big stuff today. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested by that because it, when you say refining the process, because mm. it, it feels like it, let's say in the in the example you gave that people understand that they can appreciate let's say the culture of those organizations so you know that it's a a, a spider-man film or a marvel film or whatever yep. it is and 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 the culture that ends up producing that not just the people in it but, but it, it's it's better described as as the culture and so therefore mm -hmm. people are appreciating the culture that produces those films and in yep. the same way that it might be that people appreciate the culture that sky news has or or whatever it is yes yeah, so exactly. It's you pick your preferred world, not a preferred person. Yeah, which which opens up the opens room, let's say, for more people, I guess, to in, experience that kind of fame or or to have their moment. But is that more dangerous that we appreciate the organization rather than the people who make it? It'd just be, it's just about control. Uh, you know, if you've got, uh, if you are a movie production studio for Paramount or something, I don't know who made a lot of Arnie's films. If you're Paramount, you would rather have people coming for the Terminator and being able to cast whoever you want as the Terminator, as opposed to people coming for Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Because you own the exclusive rights to the Terminator, but not to Arnold Schwarzenegger. So you would have to, you would lose some kind of people people being attracted primarily to some th something that which doesn't come under your direct financial control would mean that you would deals would be more difficult. Presumably the actor would want more. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're saying a refining of that process, I, yes. am I, sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't quite follow, but that's because I'm a little bit slow and it's, <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I'm, understanding it that this is let's say a a bad thing because in the case of the media and this is almost definitely happening that the people that make that write the stories the people that edit them are less important than the news outlet itself let's say right. um and therefore it, it, everyone within it is expendable and it becomes harder to change from the inside that's it. um yes yeah, so this is overall a bad thing tim and see if you think this helps so let's assume that in the past, you know, in a Gramscian model in the twenties, we would have co-opted someone from life and it would have been the person who became reliable as a politician or as a human rights lawyer or whatever else, the system would have co-opted them and we saw them more than the system. And because we saw them, we go, Oh, that person's credible because they've been doing that for so long. Now we've moved from co-opting for life for co-opting for long enough to make us believe in the product, whether the product be a particular media company, a particular franchise. Yeah. And that's not so the balanced. idea. Yeah. Mm. And so that fits under that Gramscian perspective of co-option isn't necessarily bad, but let's say. No, it just is. And it's what, yeah. it's what the, so now what we're saying is we'll only co-opt you for a little bit, but we'll put you within a continuum sort of of the storyline or the worldview Mm. Where you might only get paid off for a short period, probably enough to step away, and you let more people have the dream. Oh wow, maybe I'll get co-opted for a two-film deal. Mm. Now it's delusional. 
it's still such a tiny proportion of people. But you make more people think maybe they'd like the co-option because look, we change star every two years, yep. not every twenty. Yep. And and what have you and what do you get to do with the stars? You get to do everything all over again. Yep. Uh, all new every go. time. It's their first movie. Isn't that incredible? It's their first nomination. They're going out with this person. You know, they've yeah. married this person. They drink this type of coffee. You can keep it. It's like every a perfect, two years. It's like it, it's like the the kind of oh, I don't want to anger Star Wars people, but it's kind of like the fan communities for Star Wars. That they just want every every new thing. They're so pumped for it. They are one hundred percent in for it the real, real fans. And they just love new stuff. It doesn't mm. matter if it's not related to the old stuff. It just, they just want more. And it's kind of, it's like atomizing the, it, it's like atomizing identities in the, in the media that we're consuming readies us more for consuming new iterations of things. Mm. It's like, it's training us to be uh, adaptable to, change in the things we're consuming, like change in the staples. So it's conditioning us perhaps in a way to just be less, less opposed to change and new ventures. Is that an illusion? Mm. If anyone sees through this and goes, I don't want to be a part of this anymore in the past, we might've noticed them disappear. Oh, but man. now everyone okay. disappears. So, okay, let, let's use a media example. Okay, how long did Sandra Sully read the late night news? Oh, I, I, I can't remember not, not so reading. Now, can we imagine any young woman lasting that long in the current environment? No, no, of course not. But we won't ever expect it again either because they'll move the late news reader on every two years. Right. That's so interesting. There's, I think there's two things at play there when you describe that. One is that it gives absolutely more power to those organizations because yep. it means that they don't have to deal with any kind of opposition from inside yep. um, and because there's just a steady line of competitive... The co-option is becoming more ruthless. Absolutely. Other thing is that that, that um, adaptability and change is, is almost, for, from the audience perspective, is almost illusionary because that change is not very meaningful. The no. change in actors in a Star Wars film is hardly meaningful in the context of the entire storyline. No. And so whilst it's kind of preparing people to be more adaptable, not in a way that would be constructive. Nothing positive about it. So I look back to when I was playing guitar and every month each of the major guitar magazines would have a new up-and-coming guitarist somewhere in the mag and a guitarist who'd made it for a couple of years on the cover of their new album. Mm. And yeah. you know, you realize about two years into this, okay, the only thing you get any value out of with these magazines is the sheet music. <laughs> yeah. Cause the rest is just change the name, change the hairstyle, same guy. Yeah. Interesting. So where do you, Oh, here's an interesting question. Um, if I could ask, with these kinds of things, and I, 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 maybe let's try and keep it to news, uh, news media, but also if you have any other examples, I think it's rather interesting. Where is the point where that starts to, where that started to happen? And maybe it's the internet, but like in terms of guitarists and things, like is there a point where an artist's individual individuality is actually appreciable? I think by the mid-90s in music in most popular forms, 
it's a case of just roll the old out, roll the new in until then music becomes less relevant when the internet and gaming and streaming, you change music forever. So I think they were changing by the mid nineties. I think they were changing even pre-internet to shorter career spans to get more, you know, more movement in the machine to cycle more people through the roles that the system requires people to play. I'd like to think that grunge was a reaction to that starting to happen. Yeah. And guess what? They commercialized it in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Look yep. at rap rap, the ultimate outsider music. Oh yeah. No kidding. And, and totally and utterly commercialized. Yep. So what we see is that, okay, there's a chance to make cash here. Right. Can we co-op this first lot? Oh, it's a bit difficult. All right. Let's pay people nearly as competent too much for a while to build up some alternatives. Now we own half the market. Now we'll rotate our new people through faster to get the entrance of the audience. Tick, 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 tick. Wow. Okay. So clearly this, this is applicable to many industries, society broadly. I want a very central place that can explain all of this because I think whilst I, and I haven't read Gramsci, but I've been around you and, and Peter. Uh, so I've been around you, David and, and Peter uh, enough to broadly understand obviously what, what, what he was talking about. So is that the place to go to then for everyone to study this, to understand the kind of society that people are growing up into um, and how, how, human nature kind of dictates these things or is should someone kind of redo that to um, be a little bit broader and not just in the political sense? I think we need someone to reinterpret Gramsci from now who's a really good scholar, but also you need people to be reading Czesław Milos, the Polish poet who came up with the idea of playing it, playing the game. So you don't have to play at all. Mm. So Milos would say, let yourself look like you've been co-opted stash as many resources as possible, but never believe it. Never believe you were special. Never believe they cared about you. Never believe you were anything but interesting enough to help the machine continue, but know that before you get there, know you were being co-opted. So you aren't co-opted, gain the resources, gain the experience, build the network and work out who you encounter who also knows they were co-opted, but doesn't let it stick. Mm. Take the advantages, but don't lose yourself. in. So how many of these celebrities now that have the short career totally and utterly implode? I am not sure. The the vast, the vast majority. Yeah. Yeah. The vast majority. It's either drugs or porn or some other thing. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Cause they think, celebrities for life because they love you know as a kid they grew up watching arnie or stallone or whatever ozzy osbourne yeah it's meant to be for life Mm -hmm. no you get your two albums or your two movies and now it's time to piss off so the problem is the moment we're dealing with a group of people who their heroes got the for life version they're not going to even get the for the decade version I'm going to put this question out there because I think we will have an interesting perspective or I hope that you guys will have an interesting perspective. Does this extend to public intellectuals as well? Does it extend to you get your two books and then you fade, you know, you don't get your Noam Chomsky now where you've produced however many books over the course of your life. It's, 
it's it's two or it's one or it's whatever i mean i'm i'm jordan peterson comes to mind and to the extent that he reached a, a very reasonable level of fame and has now kind of fallen off and that's possibly for a few different health no, the reasons, system but... will look for the new person the difference is now we go back to this group who are opting not to be co-opted are learning mm. to live on less money yeah how many little podcasts like ours might go on 20 years and have a total loyal base yeah well i hope so but yeah that's the point we have, we don't know yet because we're in the early phase but I would say what we're already seeing is people who choose not to be co-opted or take the money while they can and recover from it and work out what happened to them. Go, hang on. All right. I've got the freedom now to understand how the world works. I've got some resources, right? I'll be careful with my resources and I'll engage in the things I'm interested in. And they're out there and you can find them. You just have to look because system's not going to willingly let you know, but they're all still out there. So public intellectuals are going to, probably not have the profile of people like Jordan Peterson in the future because mm. he is a threat to the machine. Even his two books annoyed the machine. Yeah. Interesting. Cause I, I regularly, regularly finding myself wishing and wanting yearning that this podcast becomes popular in ways that it isn't because I'm satisfied with yeah, we with have a lot our of response. We're really but... grateful for all the support, but we would love to get two million listens a month. Exactly. That would be, be fantastic. Awesome. Wouldn't it just be, I just, it's, it's not even necessarily for my own gain, right? I just think that some of the things that we talk about, some of the, the just, it, it, that knowledge share would just be instrumental. Um, yep. To build these people who can play it, playing the game so they don't have to play it all or recover from co-option Mm. or work out I can live on minimal money and not ever be co-opted and that those three groups together will eventually be a lot of people and helping that lot of people come together and go, hang on, we have enough of a shared collective identity that we should also have a shared political influence. Yeah. I was just thinking that put it this way. I would like to co-opt people into the hive mind of the blind insights podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. I, I'm not sure I want a hive mind. No, I just, <laughs> anything again, I could describe. We both used phrases today with cheeky, you know, smiles on our faces. Yes. Um, to get the point across that that's what we're dealing with. A system mm. that whether it knows or not, that, that's the thing I don't remember with Gramsci, whether he thought the co-opters understand what they do or because it was done to them, they just repeat what was successful in their life. Interesting. So we're all a bunch of individuals, but we're kind of playing this broad societal game of risk. Can't help it. Risk as in the board game. I mean, mm. Uh, <laughs> mm. can't help it. How many groups, how many individuals can we co-opt and control at once and then maintain to win the game? Well, how many people can we co-opt so they feel they're part of whatever you know, the central group is? Yes. So we don't even need to control them. Again, it's this Foucauldian idea of you learn to self-regulate and normalize. You take on board those norms as if they were your own and you don't need to be surveilled because you behave reliably. So to bring this back around to media, possibly in the Australian context, the only thing I can think to ask is what are your predictions in terms of how things might or might not change let's say in our lifetimes to keep it a bit more narrow i think we're going to see more clumsy attempts from holders of capital or investors or owners of owners of the carcass 
I think we're going to see more attempts to co-opt emerging non-traditional areas of, of, of media. You're going to see lots more, what were we talking about before, Channel 9 podcasts. Um, you're going to see a lot more, you know, Kyle Sanderlin's flash mobs, that type of thing. Um, and just the attempt of the old media or old power structures to kind of reach into the new and dynamic power structures. Other than that, I can't make very many solid predictions, unfortunately. Depends how bad it gets, I guess. I think yeah, it depends think... what social pressures there are for us to respond to. Mm. So I'll totally agree with Peter. That's what the system will do. But what I'm interested in is what happens to those who decide they don't need the big income, those who decide not to be co-opted, those who play it playing the game, take the resources, but never drink the Kool-Aid, never believe they were special, never believe they really fit, never believe they were being promised immortality. Just understand, whew, I got that two book, two album, two film, two whatever deal, or the two years reading the late news, and now I'm gonna take my bit of capital and my skills and my network, and I'm gonna go over here with all these other people who want to maintain some autonomy, but also want a collective that is less about manipulating each other and actually about supporting each other and try and grow something. No, I don't think there's a guide on where to find those people. No, you just know them when you meet them. Yeah. We're sitting here with, you know, there's three of us here. There's hundreds of people who will listen to this. Wow, um, I think we covered a lot. Uh, is there any final comments, gentlemen? I'll pass it to Peter first. No, look, no, I, look uh, I'm pretty pretty happy with everything that we've covered. I suppose keep on, keep on keeping up, you two and everyone listening and we'll change this thing slowly, hopefully inexorably, all together with all of our individual unique contributions. And David? Keep calm and continue to choose not to be co-opted. Without playing the game, at least. Mm. Play it playing the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretend to be co-opted. <laughs> Get right. the resources, because that gives you choices. Mm. All right, well... Now that we've burned life down to the procurement of resources. Uh, <laughs> we better work out an introduction. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, well, thank you, um, Peter, for joining us. Pleasure as always. And thank you, David. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, Peter. And thank you, listeners. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.